Hello, everyone. <laughs> I sound very upset right now. I am not upset. I've just recorded this once and it came out awful, so now I'm doing it again. And it's a lot this week because I'm by myself. My fault. That's Harrison. It's Harrison's fault. But I will never blame him because he's a perfect angel and can do no wrong. Um, <laughs> welcome to the Spooky Show. I'm Kate, your host. And like I said, it is just me. So I'm going to be telling you a story, a true crime story, to the best of my ability, all by myself. <laughs> In case you didn't know, I'm doing this by myself. <laughs> How many times can I stress that? Because, like I said, I recorded this before and I'm very... Um, it's a lot. It's just a lot. It's a long case. I don't know why I did this to myself, but here we are. So let's just dive in because I don't want this to go on forever. I don't know how long you can stand to hear just my voice because personally, like I said in my last recording, this is my own personal hell. Okay, so this case that we're talking about is technically unsolved and it's very suspicious. So I would love to hear what you all think at the end. If you do want to talk about it with me at the end, um, follow my Twitter at SpookyShowPod and DM me and we can talk about it. So this is the case of Robert Wan. And I picked it because it takes place in Washington, D.C., which is where I live. Um, It happened like a few blocks away from my place, my current place. Um, Not while I lived here, though. This case takes place in 2006, but it's cool because... I would go check out the house sometimes and be like, oh my god, that's where a murder happened. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, Robert was a fourth-generation Chinese-American born in New York City. Growing up, he attended an all-boys Catholic school, and later he went on to college, and he majored in public policy. Uh, While he was at college, he met a friend called Joseph Price, And Joseph would turn into a lifelong friend. And I bring this up because Joseph will come back in the story. Robert ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And then he went on to pass the New York State Bar Exam. So Robert's very smart and very educated. He went on to win a ton of awards. Um, Yeah, he's just a smart dude. So in the year 2000, Robert moved to Washington, D.C., and he joined a firm focusing on commercial real estate and employment law. And in 2002, while attending a law conference, he met a lady named Catherine, and they ended up falling in love and getting into a relationship. Catherine lived in Chicago, and for months, Robert would fly out there every single weekend to spend time with her. And after a year of dating, they got engaged and they got married. So by 2006, Robert was 32 years old and lived with his wife, Catherine, in Oakton, Virginia. On June 30th, Robert left his job and then got a new job, taking on the title of General Counsel for Radio Free Asia, which was an organization that broadcasted news, giving information, commentary, and whatnot to people in East Asia. Um, Robert and his wife would commute 20 to 30 miles to their jobs in Washington, D.C., so they were kind of far out of the city. Uh, Robert decides that he wants to attend a law education course, which would be held late in the evening. And Robert wants to attend, but knows it would be kind of a hassle because this course takes place in Washington, D.C., so he would have to, like, go after work, stay really late to do this course, commute on the way home, and then commute back early in the morning for work. 
So he figured it would be a lot easier if he could just stay somewhere in Washington, D.C. with a friend. And Robert's wife agreed. She was like, yeah, I should definitely stay over somewhere. That would be easier. And so originally Robert calls a female friend asking if he could stay at her place on the night of August 2nd rather than commuting home after his long day. But she had a decline for some reason. We don't really know why. So Robert decides to call Joseph Price, who we talked about earlier, his friend from college. Joseph lived in downtown Washington, D.C., 1509 Swan Street Northwest, to be exact, if you ever are in the area and want to check out the place. Um, And this place was close to Robert's work, too, which was ideal for him. So Robert asks Joseph, and Joseph agrees. So the plan is Robert will commute with his wife into Washington, D.C., since she works in the city, too. And then she would go home like normal, and then he would attend that class at night and stay at Joseph's afterwards. Robert's wife agreed with the plan and helped him pack, and they put it in motion. So Joseph lived in a townhouse. He's a very prominent lawyer focusing on gay rights advocacy, and he lived in this townhouse with his domestic partner, Victor, and the two have been together for quite some time. They also had another guy living there named Dylan. Uh, Victor worked as a senior marketing manager for Milk, like actual milk that you drink, um, specifically for Milk Processors Education Program. So this is the group that's responsible for the famous Got Milk campaigns. Dylan, the third guy, graduated from a massage therapy school, and he worked as a massage therapist. Um, Victor and Joe shared the master bedroom, and Dylan had a bedroom on the second story. And this house is three stories high, so Dylan is on the second floor, Victor and Joe are on the top floor in the master bedroom. It's said that Dylan and Joe had a sexual relationship also, but not with Victor. When asked about their relationship, Joe and Dylan, they referred to it as being a submissive, a dominant and submissive sexual relationship, with Dylan being the dominant. And Dylan was really into BDSM and all that. Um... So what happened to Robert? Let's get to business. Let's, let's, let's get into it. On August 2nd, Robert and his wife commute to work like normal. After work, Robert's wife goes home, and Robert stays behind, does his work training, and then at 9.30 p.m., he calls his wife to check in with her. At 10.24 p.m., Robert calls Joe. This call is not recorded or anything, but based off of what Joe said, Robert was just checking in and letting him know that he would be leaving shortly to grab a taxi and he would be over pretty soon. When Joe was later interviewed, they asked him what he was doing at this time before Robert arrived, and Joe said that him and all the guys in the house had just finished dinner and they were cleaning up. Apparently, he was also cleaning up a mess from an overflowing shower. After cleaning, Victor went up into his room to watch Project Runway, and Joe said that Robert had arrived sometime between 10.30 and 10.40 p.m. Joe says when Robert arrived, he and Dylan were still up, and they were in the kitchen. They welcomed Robert inside. They all stood in the kitchen, had some small talk, gave Robert a glass of water, caught up, and then Robert said he was really tired from his long day, and he just wanted to go to bed and catch up more in the morning. So the guys head up to their bedrooms. Joe shows Robert where he would be sleeping for the night and goes back upstairs. Dylan went to his room, took his sleeping pill, started reading, and then fell asleep. 
Dylan says he heard the shower start running, so he assumed Robert was taking a shower. Then he fell asleep. So at this point, it was 11 p.m., Joe lays in bed, and he starts watching TV, but, Bic- but Victor, the boyfriend, asked Joe to turn off the TV because he wanted to go to sleep, and it was distracting. So then they both just decided to go to bed with no TV. So then between 11.05 and 11.07 p.m., there were two emails that were drafted from Robert's phone, which is based off of phone records. One email was written to Catherine, Robert's wife, saying that he made it to the house, he was going to take a shower, go to bed, and he would talk to her the next day. The second email was to a work colleague confirming the lunch appointment that they were both going to have the next day. Both of these emails were drafted, but they were never sent. The townhouse they were all in has an alarm system, but the alarm system, of course, was not active that night. So somebody had turned it off. But even when it's not active, there's a door chime that goes off if the front door or the back door is opened or closed. And at this time, the neighborhood that they lived in had a very high crime rate, and everybody had an alarm system, so it was kind of weird that theirs was off or somebody turned it off. Victor and Joe are in their master bedroom sleeping, and they hear the chime of the door. They said they didn't think twice about it because they thought Sarah, the other roommate, was just coming home early or something. But then what occurs between 11.10 and 11.50, nobody really knows. Um, at 11.49 p.m., a 911 call is made by Victor, and he's frantic and crying and panicking. The 911 operator asks what kind of services he needs, and he says he needs an ambulance. He states to the 911 dispatcher that he believes an intruder has entered the home and that their guest has been stabbed. If you listen to the 911 call, he does sound panicked, and how a lot of us would probably sound if we were making this call... Um, I listened to it, and he does sound very shocked and upset. When the So then the dispatcher is telling him, like, here's what you need to do. You need to put a towel over Robert's wounds until the ambulance gets there and apply firm pressure. She also tells Victor to switch the towel out if it becomes soaked with blood and to continue to do so until paramedics arrive. During the call, Victor is crying. And he tells the operator that he's afraid to go downstairs to open the door for paramedics because he's unsure if the intruder if the intruder's inside of the house. The 911 operator asks him if he's applying pressure to the victim with the towel to stop the wound from bleeding, and Victor says that his partner is doing that or somebody else is. So he's like, "Yeah, somebody's got it. It's happening." Then at 11:54 p.m., the paramedics arrive, and Victor's the one who opens up the door for them. He's wearing a white robe, and he directs them to the second floor and just tells them it's that way. When paramedics go up the stairs, they run into Dylan, and uh, Dylan says nothing after they ask him where the victim is. He just points to the bedroom and then walks into his own bedroom and shuts the door. Paramedics later said it was really, sh- it was a really strange encounter. Um, like, apparently somebody's stabbed and dying in his room, and he's calm and just points and says nothing. So then the paramedics go into the bedroom where Robert was staying, and they find Robert on the fold-out bed lying on his back. His head is on a pillow that looked perfectly fluffed, like it hadn't been laid on at all. There was only one indentation of his head as he was currently laying, which means, like, he wasn't there for long. It looked like he had just been placed there. The room was also in perfect condition. There was not a sign of any type of struggle. It looked like Robert was placed perfectly onto this pull-out mattress. 
and his body was slightly at an angle. He was on top of the sheets of the bed, and underneath him the bed was made almost perfectly. Robert also had on a t-shirt and underwear, and later Catherine would say this is what he always wore to bed, so that's normal. He also had his night guard in his mouth. So the paramedics see Robert in the bed perfectly, and Joe is sitting opposite of him on the bed. Paramedics ask Joe what's going on, what happened, and Joe says, I just heard a scream and I ran downstairs. Joe moves out of the way so paramedics can work on Robert, and the paramedics find three slits on Robert's shirt. One seems to be in Robert's abdomen area, one is directly in his heart, and they see no sign of life. Paramedics would later report that the crime scene was kind of odd. Um, Robert had seemed to be stabbed three times in really major places, his abdomen, his heart, and on his side. But paramedics said there was not a single ounce of blood anywhere in the room, not even on the bed. There is no blood on Robert's shirt, but the blood that's on his shirt looks like somebody dipped their finger in the blood and then swiped it on there to make it look like a blood streak. And later it was tested and proven that that is exactly what it was. Okay, so remember when the 911 dispatcher told Victor to apply pressure onto the wound with a towel and keep doing that until paramedics got there? Victor said on the 911 call that someone's doing that right now, but they get the towel that was supposedly used to cover to cover Robert's wound, and this towel had like a little speck of blood on it, which doesn't make sense at all because his wounds were pretty bad. There would probably be like towels and towels soaked with blood instead of just one towel with like little specks of blood on it. Um, the paramedics put Robert onto the stretcher and they carry him out to the ambulance and take him to the hospital. The paramedics were questioned by investigators later on, and one of the paramedics said that the three men appeared to be freshly showered and acting very calm when he came to the house, which is weird because normally when he, when the paramedics go to a crime scene or a home, people are acting like very frantic. Also, Victor, the one who called 911, sounded super panicked on the phone and was crying, but paramedics said that when they got there, Victor appeared to be concerned, but not at all like how he was acting on the phone. The, the EMT would later say that it appeared Robert seemed like he had been freshly showered because of his lack of blood and because of how clean he was. Also, according to crime scene investigators, it appeared that everything in the house seemed untouched. There didn't seem to be a sign of a struggle at all. And Robert had two wallets, both filled with cash. He had a mouth guard case, a watch, and his Blackberry. So if somebody broke into his house and was trying to rob him, they probably would have taken that stuff. Also, the knife he was stabbed with seemed to have come from their own kitchen. Sadly, Robert was pronounced dead on August 3rd at 12.30 a.m. When all the guys were questioned, they all had very consistent stories, and none of them seemed to mess up or waver. According to Dylan, Joe, and Victor, Joe led Robert to his second-floor guest room where they helped Robert pull out and set up his bed. Joe and Victor say that after they heard the door chime that they also heard weird noises. They would go on to describe the weird noises as a low or muffled scream, which caused them to both get up out of bed and go downstairs to investigate. They both said that they ran down to the second floor and then they heard another muffled scream and ran towards Robert's room. Victor and Joe say that's when they go into Robert's room and they see him wounded. Dylan said that the screaming and all the ruckus is what woke him up and he opened the door to see what was going on. Then Joe says upon checking Robert, he found the boning knife from the kitchen, 
laying, it, laying on Robert's stomach. He moved the knife from Robert's stomach and put it on the nightstand. Joe says he lifted up Robert's shirt, and that's when he saw all the stab wounds and the blood, and it was just all over Robert's chest. So then the EMT also said that the stab wounds were big enough to fit three fingers in, like they were big gaping wounds. But there was obviously a lack of blood evidence in the room besides a few small stains on the sheets and pillow. Police would report no evidence of forced entry into the home and that no items had been stolen out of the home. Police bring cadaver dogs in who are trained to alert the police officers if they find blood or even bodies, and the dogs alert the police officers to blood that seems to be sensed on the rear stairwell as well as a drain and the dryer. But to the naked eye, they don't see any blood, but they take note of this dog situation. So the whole scene is weird, and all the guys stand by the fact that nobody in the house is responsible for this. They all stick to their stories about sleeping, being in bed, and hearing the muffled scream. Joe ended up being interrogated by police for about six hours. Victor was in there for about eight hours, and then Dylan was in there for almost 12 hours. During the interrogation, Joe is reported to be arrogant, unconcerned, aggressive, and self-centered. Victor was initially tearful, and then he became passive and unmotivated to help the investigation. And then Dylan is apparently just unmoved, detached, and calm. So then after leaving the police station, all three men got legal counsel, and they stick with their story that Robert had to have been killed by an intruder. Then an autopsy was done on Robert, and according to the lady who did the autopsy, she found two broken capillaries in Robert's right eye and his left eyelid. And these happen when somebody's fighting for air, such as suffocation or being choked. The examiner did state that asphyxia seemed to be involved in this, but it's not necessarily what caused him to die. The stab wounds were perfect slit-light defects, both clean and symmetrical, which is very uncommon. Um, because usually they're jagged, especially if you're trying to fight back. Each wound was four to five inches deep, and there were absolutely no defense wounds on his body. After swabbing his mouth, genital area, and his anus, the examiner found evidence of semen in his anus and his own genitals. So they sent this DNA for testing, and it turns out it was Robert's own semen, which may make sense, um, but how did the semen get into his anus? The medical examiner also found six needle marks throughout his body, some on his chest, his right foot, left hand, and left side of his neck. Toxicology was done, but the problem with that is you have to be looking for a specific drug in order to find it. So when they do toxicology, they look for basic stuff like alcohol, cocaine, opiates, or anything over the counter. Um, there isn't a single test that can be done that will find any type of drug. So when the test came back, they all came back negative. So the knife that was found next to Robert's body, it later came out, wasn't the knife that was used on Robert. The knife that was found next to Robert's body didn't line up with the stab wounds that Robert had. There were also no fibers found on the, the blade, which if you're stabbing through a shirt, usually fibers would end up on the knife. So there were no t-shirt fibers found, but there were tiny fibers found on this blade that lined up with the towel that had blood on it in the bedroom. So what they think happened is, whoever did this, they got some blood from Robert's body and then swiped it on the knife to make it look like it was the murder weapon. The guys aren't talking anymore, they all have an attorney, but they do get a warrant to search the home and take out any evidence or anything they could use to hopefully put some pieces together. 
They come across a lot of sexual things. For example, one item they found was known as a milking machine, which is used to force someone to ejaculate. Some people believe that this is what was used on Robert, which would explain where the semen came from. They also found books such as Erotic Bondage Handbook and Juice, Electricity for Pain and Pleasure. They also found a three-piece culinary set, which was missing one of the knives. And they also found metal probes and, a, and an electric shockwave generator. So years go by and nothing happens until, until 2008. They end up selling the place in 2008 and they all leave the town home. In October of 2008, Dylan ended up getting charged with obstruction of justice. And the next month in November, Joe and Victor were arrested and charged with obstruction of justice as well. Catherine, Robert's wife, filed a $20 million civil suit against the men, but all three men would end up being released. They were trying to charge them with obstruction of justice because they obviously cleaned up the crime scene and they cleaned him up and seemed to be hiding some stuff. But on December 19, 2008, all three men were charged with conspiracy. An affidavit filed by authorities against Dylan stated that the men were not telling the truth about what happened that night. The judge ended up finding all three of the men not guilty. The judge goes on to say that there's just no evidence to prove guilt. From the legal standpoint, there's nothing. There's no fingerprints, there's no blood on anyone's clothes, there's no trace of them hiding something, there's no weapon found anywhere, there's no drugs found anywhere. Um, the judge also goes on to say that she believes they know what happened and they know a lot more than what they're saying, but she can't charge them on this because there's just no proof. So there have been no charges placed for Robert's murder, and the three guys in the house stand by the fact that they believe somebody broke into the house, they stabbed Robert, and they ran out. And that is exactly where they stand today. And unfortunately, that's it. Um, I think you can probably guess my theory. I think that these guys definitely had something to do with it, and... I'm kind of upset I don't have a guest right now to talk about theories or bounce them back and forth with one another. But like I said, please DM me on Twitter at Spooky Show Pod and we can talk about it. We can feel really upset that these people are out free in the world together <laughs> and uh, commiserate over that because it's pretty obviously. I don't even want to say it's pretty obviously. It's something to do about it because like they're still out there. <laughs> But um, anyway, thank you for listening. I'm really sorry it was just me this week. But uh, we, have, we have some fun stuff coming up in the next, uh, next couple of weeks. Next month is spooky season, so be on the lookout. Um, you can find me at, on Twitch uh, Tuesday nights, twitch.tv slash mindsugar666, or at my personal social medias uh bubbling queen thank you for listening have a great week bye